Okay, we're still in Act 7, Stephen's speech. And we're seeing a lot of theological significance to this sermon or speech that was given by Stephen, an early Christian, who the Bible says was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And in Luke Acts, when Luke says the Holy Spirit came upon somebody, he means listen to them. They're speaking for God. That's what that means. So Stephen is speaking for God. His words are words that we ought to believe. And we should understand what God is saying. So we have gotten to verse 41 in Acts 7. And Stephen is recounting how they had thrust aside Moses. Remember last time I had that slide, your fathers, before our fathers, our fathers, corporate solidarity. But once they reject Christ, then they own it. So our fathers rejected Moses. And so he is explaining what apostasy in the wilderness was all about. Verse 41, I'm reading from the ESV. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. And so Moses is on Sinai speaking to God who appeared tangibly in a theophany and spoke to God. The people had agreed that they wanted it that way. If you go back through Exodus, because when God first gave the 10 words, as they were called, the people said, we're full of fear and trembling. This is too much. God's going to kill us. We can't deal with this. Moses, you go talk to God. And then when you come with what God says, we'll listen to you. So they had agreed. And Moses did go talk to God. And God did reveal himself. And God did speak to Moses. But they went back on their end of the deal. Instead of listening to Moses... They made a golden calf. And their excuse for making the calf was they couldn't see Moses anymore. Where's Moses? We don't know what happened to him. Aaron, make us a calf. And we're going to say, this is your God that took you out of Egypt. But wait a second. They knew where Moses was. And that he was there on Sinai was something they agreed to. Apostasy is wicked and perverted. It's people turning away from what they know is right and what they know is true and refusing to listen to God. Okay? So that's what's going on. 
So rather than listening to what God had to say, they closed their ears and they made a golden calf. Now notice the terminology here in Acts. They were rejoicing. Rejoicing is a word used in the Pentateuch for worshiping God. So they had a worship service. They made their calf and they had a big party and it was a worship service and they were claiming, I hope you know this, that the calf represented Yahweh because who took them out of Egypt? Yahweh. They obviously knew the calf didn't do it. The calf just got made. They didn't bring the calf with them out of Egypt. Okay. So obviously he didn't do it. And they're saying this represents Yahweh. Now, remember that sermon that I did and I showed the video on the second commandment against graven images? They're doing what God forbade them to do and Moses was up on Sinai getting those ten words. You can't make something and say this represents Yahweh. That is forbidden. It's idolatry. It's wicked. And God won't allow it. We live in a time when idolatry is rampant. People want to make a God after their own image. So it says in Deuteronomy 12, 7, there also you and your households shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. My dear beloved fellow Christians, are we going to rejoice in the Lord or are we going to rejoice in something created? The number one idol as far as popularity in our contemporary world is nature. People worship nature. I wrote a book about emergent and they want to worship the creation. They want to erase this distinction between the creator and the creation. And they worship and serve the creature. So that's idolatry. Made with hands in Acts 7.41, works of their hands, is Old Testament terminology applied often to idols. The next time I'm in Acts, assuming I get through this, we'll have a PowerPoint that has to do with whose tent does Yahweh dwell in. And the, it says in Acts 7.48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. 
we'll see that issue. Yes, Eric, please. Yeah, Bob, it's interesting to see that uh, pejorative made with hands is used, like you said, all over the Bible for idolatry. And one time it really came to prominence in my mind was when you were teaching through Colossians. And uh, if everyone's just turned your Bible to Colossians real quick, you'll see a contrast between circumcision made with hands and circumcision made without hands. It says here in Colossians 2, this is in verse 11, it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so what's done by man's hands is deficient. It's a symbol of idolatry. So what's needed then is what God does without hands, which is the circumcision of the heart. So Amen. it's a great catch you got. That's there, a good reading. I don't think you drink coffee, do you? No. <laughs> Too bad. Water. Brian Beers. Yes, sir. Jeremiah one sixteen. And Judy, do you mind reading one? Deuteronomy twenty seven fifteen. Uh, Eric here. Psalm one fifteen four. Jeremiah one sixteen. I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. Yep. Deuteronomy twenty seven fifteen. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast image, metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and set it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Amen. There's a curse on idolatry. Again, made with hands. Uh, Psalm 115, verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. Man. Now, yeah, go ahead. When we talk about uh, idols made with hands, where, where do pictures, pictures of things that a lot of people have, and I mean, you can buy Bibles, there's pictures of all kinds. Where okay. do we draw the line do, on? Do that? you remember when I talked about that in that video sermon? Yeah. yeah. I said, I don't believe pictures are forbidden. But depends what you want to do with them. And I gave the illustration of this Mona Lisa type picture yeah. of Jesus. And this guy was using it for divination. Well, let me give you another example. Not only pictures, about buildings. All right? Is it a sin to build a building in which to have church? I'd say no. But I have seen that turned into sin. And this would apply to pictures. Okay? Because I've seen guys on TV saying, if you send me your money, then I'm going to build a house for God. And this is going to be the kingdom of God. Then it's a sin. Because God doesn't dwell in houses made with hands. Okay? And having a zip code doesn't make something the kingdom of God. Now, you can have a picture. I think I illustrated this 
in my sermon, a kid's Bible with a story of Zacchaeus, a picture of a tree and a wee little guy that comes out of there. And they have a Sunday school story. I don't think that's idolatry. Okay, well, um, I, I agree with you. Uh, if you if somebody has, like, say, a piece of art, and it's uh, a, a Buddha or something, and they don't worship it, they know it has nothing to do with it, is it wrong to have something like that? Because it's just... So then it would be something yeah. that somebody else had used for idolatry? Okay, technically... The answer to that would be found in 1 Corinthians, okay? And Paul made a division. You can think about it, Harry. What about meat offered to idols? So Paul said, you go to the meat market, there's a T-bone steak. Well, he didn't say that. (laughs) And you buy it. You take it home, put it on your grill, you had a T-bone steak. Sounds good. Let's go do that. But if they say, let's say the neighbor invites you over and he brings out the steak, says, here, join with me. This is our offering to Baal. Yeah. Wrong. <laughs> out the door. <clears throat> right. All right. So it's what what you do with it, what you think about it. Do that's you that, it that's so. how Paul dealt with it. Yeah. Now, frankly, I, I have no desire for any Buddha in my house. To me, it's loathsome. I doubt most Christians would want it. Do you have anything to add? I would just uh, tag on to what you were saying. I think you're exactly right. In the First Corinthians example that you were giving, Paul says not to eat of it for conscience sake, and he says not for your conscience but for the one who identified yeah. it as being uh, given to an idol. Because in their weak conscience, you can cause them to sin. So what if somebody it. comes to your house unexpectedly, and they're a Buddhist, right. and there sits your Buddha? And that's our freedom in Christ, Bob. I mean, if it's not forbidden by God, then we're free to do it as but long we as it might doesn't not, offend others. But we might not do it but we might not do if it, it affects others. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, yeah, go ahead. You know, uh, there's Judy and, or Ann. Okay. Go ahead. Yesterday, um, Steve and I went out to Uptown to evangelize, and there was a young man doing art. And he had a photo, and underneath it, it said creation. And it was all geometry kind of figurines. And that was his creation. Abstract art. Yep. Yeah. I have to. All right. So in Islam, where they have, uh, so their non-use of figure in their art, you know how they use geometry, and that's an extreme reading of this? Well, Islam has their own rules, but those rules didn't come from God. They choose what they want. Islam says the Bible is flawed and deficient. All right? Yeah, it's all flawed and deficient. And that their uh, scriptures, quote-unquote, are from God. But anybody that objectively looked at them 
Talk about flawed and deficient. I, uh, well, I, you know what, the same thing, I don't know, maybe somebody inherited a jade Buddha that was worth money. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want one. But look at all the Catholic idols. Yeah, Christians are going to be different about it uh, because, well, it's going to offend you. And, you know, if I was an ex-Catholic, I wouldn't want some picture of Mary hanging in my house. Well, good questions. But, but, let me explain what I found in my research for my book on emergent. The idol that people are attracted to today was not technically created by hands. It's the universe and the earth. They worship the creation. So we're not even allowed to worship what God created, the sun, moon, and stars. (laughs) This is his exercise. Yeah, I could... In my uh, studies of of Luther, I can tell you the source, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, He was saying that um, a person, when they uh, they can make God an idol, if uh, they make him after after their own image. Uh, Yeah, they can have a faulty definition of God. That's why we need what the Bible says. All right. Well, let's go on here. I got to make a little progress. But good discussion. Thank you. So we worship the creator, not the creation. And we don't worship the work of our hands. And if somebody paints a picture, that's all it is, is a picture. And it's not a sin to have art in your house. It's not a sin to show people pictures of your grandkids. If it was... There's a lot of sinners. <laughs> no, it's not a sin. But if somebody had a certain grandkid they were super proud of, and they put a big frame picture up and bowed before it and said, God speaks to me through this kid, then you'd have idolatry. Does that make sense? You can turn anything into an idol. Now, I mentioned buildings and these TV preachers. They're going to have the kingdom of God in a building. It's not a sin to have a building. But a building is a facility. And a facility is there to facilitate. A church building is there to facilitate the true worship of the true God. But the building isn't a holy object. Does that make sense? All right. Honestly, we've had many things that come up over the last 30, 40 years. And I've been in the ministry. Some people, we had a communion table. And somebody would object to that. 
saying that that was forbidden to have a communion table. And I'd say, no, all this is is a functional table where we put out the Lord's Supper. It's not a holy object. Does that make sense? All right. Now, this is amazing. The terminology, it's been so rich for me. Now, having Logos Bible software and doing everything starting with the Greek, you see these repeated terms that don't always show up in English, though they should. And it tells us sometimes irony. Okay? And so I find the English translation that brings out the terminology. That's why I use ESV here. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship, to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Noticed God turned away. Earlier, it said they turned. This, Eric, should remind you of something you preached in Romans 1. You want to tell us? Reprobation. (laughs) See, this is called stump the pastor. Reprobation, Romans 1. Yeah, so... God hands them over to what they end up worshiping. They end up worshiping the creation. They end up worshiping the idols of their hands. And so God basically says, you want that? He hands them over to those things. And so three times in Romans chapter 1, you see that very phrase that Bob has, he gave them over. It's a paradidomy, isn't it, in the Greek, if I recall? I think so, yeah. Yeah, he hands them over. So that's what reprobation is. Well, the turn is strafo, I think. Okay, so the turning is straightforward. But I think that giving them over is the handing over, the paradigm. paradigmized to give over. Exactly. And so this has to do with um, the difference between the elect and the reprobate. When the elect are regenerated, God goes hands-on. He has to, by his spirit, enable them and give them the ability to believe. But all he has to do to harden the reprobate so that they reject the gospel all of their life is let them be who they are. Don't change anything. Exactly, hands them over. Yeah, I remember when I first was teaching through Romans in 1986, and I saw that in one of the commentaries I had, there's a chiastic structure. It says literally, they did not approve of God, so God disapproved of them. It's reflexive. They decided, I don't approve of God. We know people, Eric, we've talked about this. This one seminary teacher I had and you had is now an atheist. He used to be a seminary professor. Now he's an avowed atheist. Okay? He didn't approve of God. 
So God just gave him over to a reprobate mind. Eric, I have a question in regards to the gave them over where God doesn't do anything. He just lets people be themselves. Then what about when, like in Revelation, when he gave them strong delusion? So is God actually doing something there? Or what's the difference between gave them over and gave them strong delusion? Yeah, again, I think that people are open to the delusion in their reprobate minds. And um, just like... Bob was talking about they didn't approve of God. The term dokimatso is used in Romans 1. Yeah. And it has to do with being able to discern and to weigh. So people left to their own devices and their own sinfulness can't discern the worthiness of God. Dokimatso has to do with testing something. Think of you put something in a test tube and you test it to see if it's genuine. Well, they do that with God and they find him lacking. Well, the way out is in Romans 12. He says, uh, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to, to discern, dakimatso, what the will of God is. So it's only through God's power, through the Spirit, but he works through the Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ, that our minds are transformed, that we can start understanding God, wanting God, desiring God, believing God, those types of things. So the human being left to their natural default position, all you have to do to give them a delusion is let them be who they are. Yeah. So the strong delusion is God handing them over. Yeah. To you know, another thing to think about. At Babel, they built the Zugarot, and they were trying to ascend to God, to go into a different realm. God confused their languages and scattered them. Ever since Babel... The fallen and rebellious human race has wanted to undo what God did at Babel. And they so want one world government, okay, without God, man is going to be the measure of all things. But they also want spiritual power. So the ultimate act of reprobation is God sending or allowing them to have Antichrist. There's your strong delusion. So that they believe the lie. So the the turning over, uh, I mean, we're talking about like this professor, probably never a Christian in the first place, because if he if he was I mean, God wouldn't turn them over. Although we see in Corinthians where this man was turned over to Satan, but that was for correction to try to restore him. It wasn't turned over in the same sense you're talking about here. Yeah, I agree. It proves, it's like John says, they went out from us because they were never of us. Now, this professor, this was a Baptist seminary. He signed a Baptist statement of faith in order to get hired. And then Eric and I went, contended with the provost, I had already graduated, that the professors of theology, this one in particular, wasn't even teaching the things that students had to sign that they believed to get in there. The professor signs, I believe all this 
true doctrine. The students sign, I believe it. They get in there, the professor won't even teach it. It's too boring for him. Remember, I brought my syllabus when I went with Eric. First time I ever saw Eric in my life. And I, we, here I have my syllabus. And this is what turned the thing, because we were debating the provost. So I said, well, wait a second. Let me tell you what I learned. This was 1992, before he was there. I opened my syllabus. So here's what I had to learn in your seminary. Oh, here we were studying doctrine of baptism. What does it mean? Here we were studying the Lord's Supper. Here we were studying justification. And I said, don't you think that some students today need to learn these things? I'm glad I did. I said that to him. He turned to Eric and he said, how much of your money did you want back? Literally. In other words, he was saying, we're not going to teach Christian doctrine in our Christian seminary. You know, Bob, uh, Bob coined a phrase that we used often on radio now. It's called file cabinet theology, where the institution will say we believe these things, but they'll never teach it. It's in the file cabinet. And so... You, Exactly. You lose the doctrine because it's never taught. So all of your seminary students never hear, never have to wrestle, never have to discern what things are from Scripture and what aren't. They never even wrestle with those categories anymore. And see this, Laurent Schultz, I quote him in my book. His stuff, esoteric, designed for hyper-intellectuals. And I had to study it, same with other emergent people that I read. And it, it gave me a headache, but I had to figure it out. What's he saying? And I did. I got to the bottom of it. But it's the same thing. God is in everything. Okay? Panentheism. God is in everything. And they're erasing the boundary between the creator and the creation. And that's the nature of idolatry. Now, if you really want it to be simple, I've commended Peter Jones many times. I went out to his think tank back when I was doing this research. Peter Jones has two terms for all religions in the world. One-ism and two-ism. One-ism and two-ism. Peter Jones out in Escondido, California. One-ism is everything else. God is everything. God is in everything. Panentheism, or God is everything, Pantheism. Twoism means God is transcendent above and beyond the creation in every possible way. And the creation is other. Okay? We're not God. We depend on him. He sustains us. He sustains the universe. But God is not the creation. So in Peter Jones's Scheme, I'm defending twoism. Not a bad way to look at it. Yes. I recently saw a study where 95% of the seminaries in the United States do not teach biblical doctrine. And I'm asking you, what is the reason for that? Is that God turning people over? Is that a delusion? 
All right, let me let me first answer because I was there long before Eric. When I went in '92, yeah, and I graduated in '99 because I'm a slow learner. Um, well, I was also a full-time preacher, but I had some of the finest evangelical theologians that there were anywhere. Some of them, we read their commentaries. Dr. Stein, Dr. Brooks, Dr. Block, Dr. Schreiner. We love his commentaries. These guys were the best. And I had times in class, literally, I thought I was on the road to Emmaus, especially with Dr. Versaput, who, by the way, died at a young age of pancreatic cancer. And, but they were losing money, okay? We used to have student meetings, 93, 94, saying we're $3 million in the red this last year. And the college over here, Bethel College, has to subsidize us. We've got to find a way to get the seminary into the black. So they brought this guy in that we debated, and he turned it around so that they went from $3 million in the red to $12 million in the black. And he did it by bringing in the whole seeker-sensitive movement. Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, the kind of stuff that some of their own churches were into. How to make Christianity popular, and then the doctrine went into file cabinet. Okay? But it didn't stop there. They had this course called Marriage and Family Therapy, most popular course they had. Instead of turning out theologians, they were turning out therapists. I was rubbing shoulders with some of those who came to learn therapy. I was glad to, to meet them. But, you know, there were one young lady who was studying that, saw me talk. I was always in class debating with the teachers and throwing out ideas or whatever. I figured I'd get my money's worth. She said, can you help me with Acts? I've never read it. So she was in seminary and never read Acts. It worked, though. They got into the black. Yeah, you know, Bob, he's exactly right. I think that that's the problem in in seminaries today is heresy sells. Joel Osteen has 50,000 that go to his church. Good Bible preaching churches have not that many. (laughs) And um, Bob is exactly right. Heresy sells, false teaching sells. That's what makes money. So it's a catch-22. If the seminary has good theologians, nobody wants to hear them, and they don't come. The other problem is we have, there's usually a board of directors that pick the seminary presidents. Well, a lot of these board of directors, they're not theologians. What they are is successful businessmen. And so the successful businessmen, for example, at Northwestern College pick a president who I have a one-to-one meeting with to help him understand the emerging issue, the emerging church issue. And he tells me, this is the president of the whole college, he says the leading problem that we're going to be facing is how to care for the climate. He, he believes in climate change, and so he calls himself a green Christian. Yeah. And uh, so Let's look up some verses. Amen. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Brian, Jeremiah 19.13. Eric, 
2K1716. Jeremiah 1913, the, yes. house, the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah will be defiled like the place Topheth because of all the houses on whose rooftops they burned sacrifices to all the heavenly host ooh, and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Notice there's a, a positional heavenly host, other gods. As I said in that sermon, the heavenly host represented false gods. Okay, 2 Kings 17, 16. It says, And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. Yes. So the host of heaven is idolatry. So they were given over and I, as I'm claiming, and often, in fact, mostly, host of heaven has to do with demonic entities. Now, there's some of the hosts of heaven were good. Host, by the way, in the Greek, stratia is a word that means army. When the Bible calls Yahweh Lord of hosts, it's talking about the Lord of the armies of heaven. Remember that time when the curtain was pulled back and all the chariots of God? Lord of hosts, stratia, army. Now, I made a slide here. This is a new one. Oh, wait, that's the next one. Let's go to this one, 743. And you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So Stephen is proving to the Sanhedrin that their fathers were idolaters. And that because they refused to listen to the prophets, to Moses, and to whoever God sent, God put them under the judgment of reprobation and they were turned over to the host of heaven. That's not good. Now, if you remember from that video sermon, according to Deuteronomy 4.19 and Deuteronomy 32.8 and 9, the pagans where the, the allotment, the hosts of heaven were allotted to the pagans. But Israel was to be directly under Yahweh. God spoke to Israel through Moses and through the prophets in many ways, according to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. And so they didn't need idols. They didn't need consolations and they didn't need to be under these wicked spiritual powers. They were directly under Yahweh, the creator God of the universe. And Yahweh spoke to them through authoritative spokespersons. But they were warned that if they refused to listen to Yahweh 
and they made for themselves idols that God would turn them over to the allotment of the pagans. Okay, you don't want me. You don't want Moses. You don't want Jeremiah. You don't want Daniel. You don't want Ezekiel or Isaiah. And you plug your ears and you say, we want something else. We want something more tangible. The allotment of the pagans under the host of heaven happened after Babel. The Tower of Babel was an astrological observatory. They wanted to reach up and get closer to the host of heaven. Yahweh took them to himself. They said, no, we want to be like the pagans. He turned them over to the host of heaven. Interesting thing I preached in Galatians. If you want to look, well, try to remember it. Remember in Galatians, the stoichia, the elemental spirits? Paul warned the Galatians that if having come to Christ, they went back to the law, they would be putting themselves under the stoichia. No longer could you go to the old covenant and be under Yahweh if you rejected Christ in favor of the law. And when I preached that, I referenced Acts 7.42. Israel had been turned over to the host of heaven. If you're going to go back, if you're not going to trust Christ, but you want Moses, you're going back to the host of heaven. The only escape from the host of heaven is conversion. Hallelujah. Now, this is an astral idolatry. Why don't we all turn? Turn with me. Isaiah 14, 12 through 16. Let's look at how stars figure in to rebellion and idolatry. Well, Lucifer. Isaiah 14, starting with verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. So the term Lucifer comes from. Son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. Who were the nations under? Host of heaven, right? Verse 13. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Stop right there. What is this a reference to? The stars of God. It's a reference to the divine counsel. All right? So Satan was going to actually, in his mind and actions transcend even the divine counsel and be like God. 
That's the lie. I will set an amount of assembly, divine council terminology, in the recesses of the north. Eric, tell us. Uh, real quick, uh, the north is Zaphon, literally in Hebrew. It's Mount Hermon. So you see the contrast between Mount Hermon and Mount Zion. Mount Hermon is where the demonic beings come down, according to First Enoch. Uh, I think Joshua chapter 11 gives co- correspondence to that. So Zaphon is literally Mount Hermon. So that's where he would make his abode, Satan, and all of the demonic beings. Oh, Zion is for Yahweh. Exactly. All right. Continue. I will send above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's the lie. John eight forty four, and following. Nevertheless, you'll be thrust down in Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? Well, we've been talking about this ultimately in Revelation. Where is, what does it say about the pit reserved for Satan and his angels? So it says, Revelation 21.8. We're just reading here. I hope you're understanding better. So they made sacrifices, but not to Yahweh, but to the work of their hands. So God turned them over to the host of heaven. One more slide on that. This is a new one I just made. I want to prove to you that the host of heaven is more than just constellations. By the way, that tent of Moloch and uh, star of Rephon, these are references to uh, demonic or idols. Rephon, some think, was maybe a reference to Saturn. The ancient people had a lot of time on their hands. And they didn't have street lights. Did you know that? (laughs) You ever notice if you're way up north in the wilderness and you go out on the end of the dock, just do this, lay there so your neck doesn't get sore, and look up. We used to do this and see shooting stars. The ancients saw that sky every day. Anytime it wasn't cloudy, they saw. They had lifetime to observe. And they noticed that some things weren't right. All of the stars stay the same in relationship to each other. Right? Constellations. There it is. Always the same. But here comes the one. It starts early in the morning. It's on the horizon. And it takes a different track. And here's another one. It takes a different track. What were those? Planets. Good answer. So what did the ancients think? The planets were gods. They were going their own way. And then they saw patterns in the stars. They called them 
gods as well. So you have astrology, a pagan religion goes way back. What the Bible tells us is that behind Saturn, the constellation, that the Tower of Babel was designed to get up and observe more clearly, were fallen spiritual beings. Moloch has a tent. These are gods, not just stars considered to be gods, but there are also real ones, and that's what infuses this with power. You see, we did a faith at risk about Oprah spirituality. Why is this neo-paganism so popular? Because old-fashioned liberalism was just empty. It was intellectual only. We're too smart to believe in a resurrection. We're too sophisticated to believe in demons or miracles or spirits. So we're just liberal. This Bible was just stories ancient people told because they didn't know any better. Modern theological liberalism is different. It's no longer rationalistic. It's a one-ism, as Peter Jones says. It's spirituality infused with reality and power and spiritual enticement and feelings of transcendence and feelings of being one with the universe. And literally, it's infused with demonic power. And they think it's God, yes. Um, I don't want to go on a tangent, so if there's not time to, to discuss this, that's fine. But, you know, Lecture Divina and Contemplative Prayer are very popular, um, where you empty your mind. And and um, is, what, is the mind emptying, which, of course, is very pagan, um, is it where when you empty your mind, of, um, then you're, you're allowing your sin nature to just take over? Or my understanding is that demons don't go in your head and, and put thoughts in your head, but I don't know what goes on well, with Well, we that. don't need to know all the details about demons, but they're real. And people are getting in touch with, over here to Loanne, they're getting in touch with a spirituality that's real. When I went to the emergent conference to do research, after I wrote my book, that was obvious. Uh, Chris Roseborough and I were at an emergent communion service, and it got about a third of the way in. And I said to Chris, let's get out of here. Their music was demonic. I never heard music like that. Weird, discordant. I don't know what it was. I said, Chris, what is this? I never heard this. He said, it's called fusion jazz. Fusion jazz. Okay, whatever. I don't know. But they had their version of it. It was so eerie. It was eerie. It's like haunted house music. And then they were calling God she. So this is music to the goddess and always she 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 and then they justify that and say the word spirit pneuma 
It's feminine in the Greek. So the Holy Spirit is a feminine goddess. And they were worshiping the goddess with their own music. And then the point of communion was the oneness of all things. And I'm sitting there, I got to get out. Let me out of here. And Chris wouldn't leave as soon as I wanted to. He said, I want to see what they're going to do. And then they started doing, breaking the bread, and people come up when they felt like it, and then we both pulled it out of there. And Chris said to me as we left, I feel like I need a spiritual shower. I feel dirty. I'm telling you, my friends, this stuff is powerful, it's real, it's demonic. Those people... These were their leaders from all over the country were being drawn in. And they, it was so powerful, they couldn't get enough of it. Yes. And I don't want to turn this all into political, but it just makes me think, you know, we are headed towards, like you had alluded to earlier, the one world government, one world religion, one world economy. And, um, you know, Marxism, the end of Marxism is communism. And to get rid of communism, you ha- or to get rid of free market, um, our form of government, we have to uh, get rid of um, the family, we have to get rid of God, we have to get rid of all the things that we hold dear in this country. And one of the things that um, one of the leaders, and I believe it was Putin, but he had said that, you know, communism, as they were trying to do it for all these years, it, you know, they couldn't get people to buy in. But since people are spiritual in nature, once you turn it into a religion and you get ecology, um, environment, then you can get people, you know, their hearts into it because now they're vested because it's a religion. that's That's what I'm trying to tell people when I wrote my book on emergent. This is not your grandfather's liberalism. This is liberalism filled with power of this oneism, monistic religion. Please know this. Please know this. They believe in the Hegelian synthesis. Everything's evolving. I met two people at the conference, who said that they were going to write books proving spiritual evolution through biological evolution. They didn't even question biological. And they said, being how biological evolution is true, spiritual evolution is too. Hope and change. Hegelian synthesis. Look at this here. So Moloch and Rephon were examples of the host of heaven. Those who worship idols worship demons. Let me read. Well, just look it up. Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrificed to demons who were no gods. 1 Corinthians 10, 20. No, I imply that what the pagans sacrifice they offer to demons. Paul and Moses both said there were demons behind this. The Gentiles are under authorities and powers. Ephesians 2.2, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Notice, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's a spiritual power at work, not just rationalism and materialism. Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The host of heaven is demonic. Now, people miss Christy. <laughs> well, I just wanted to um, reinforce what Luann was saying. I read an article um, recently um, with Bernie Sanders supporters in Denver, and they were having an all-day meditation event to meditate him into office. It, so it's, it's real. That yeah. stuff is and real. We, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I don't know exactly how you do this, mm-hmm. but on YouTube, Jessica takes care of this. We have a channel on YouTube, yeah. and we put up Faith at Risk 4, I think. One of them is Gary Gilly, and you might want to see that one. He's talking about all this. The three steps of meditation, purgation, illumination, and union. The point of meditation is union with the prevailing deity. And that goes along with yoga. I don't know if it's been brought up at all, but the... um they're, um, in yoga, they bow to one another at the end with the term namaste, and that means I bow to y- you, or I bow to the divine in you, the universe in you. That's exactly. It's pagan. Every yoga class ends that way. Exactly. Now, some people say, can we just do the exercise? Uh, I'd say, listen, listen, get some dumbbells do this. <laughs> it's not going to hurt you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for helping us see these things and be forewarned. May we worship you, the only true God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, the only Savior. In his holy name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for a lively class. Jesus, Jesus.